we love underdog stories, don't we? Look at some of the more popular movies out there. You see legal dramas or inspiring sports stories or action adventures. We love to see someone uh, triumph in the face of insurmountable odds. We just love to see the underdog uh, win. We love those underdog stories. And that's the reason that I think we love so much the story of David and Goliath. This is one of the first stories that we hear growing up in church. It's a story that's very familiar to to, to most people in the church, and it's a story that captures our hearts because it is a, a great underdog story. It's the story of the hardened, fierce Philistine giant named Goliath fighting a young shepherd boy named David. A classic underdog story. And we're going to see from the text that Goliath was a huge underdog. Did you catch that? We're going to see from the text today that Goliath was a huge underdog. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. So we continue our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. So the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sokah and Azekah. Now those two cities were key cities. Sokah was in Judean territory, uh, the, the territory of the Israelites, but it was over towards where the Philistines resided. So when the Philistines would march into Israel, they would come to that city uh, quickly. So it was a strategic city. Azekah was the city that controlled a major roadway that went through a major valley, the Valley of Elah. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up in battle to encounter the Philistines. Here's what we know about the topography of the Valley of Elah. It's a valley approximately a mile wide with a brook running down the middle of it. You remember that later on in this story, Dave is going to find five stones from a brook. That would be the brook running in the middle of this valley. On either side of the brook, there, was, there were large plains about a half mile wide. And so these two armies, the Philistine army and the Israelite army, are faced off uh, with the, the expanse of the plains between them. And look what it says in verse 3. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. 
Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We're so grateful for this opportunity to gather as a faith family and to fellowship around your word. And we, Lord, pause to ask you to move in our midst. Holy Spirit of God, we need you to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see clearly the truths of Scripture and take those truths and apply them to our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The story of 1 Samuel is largely a story of leadership. When we begin the book of 1 Samuel, we see that there was wicked spiritual leadership in place. And so God removes those wicked spiritual leaders and gives them a new leader named Samuel, who was a prophet that would speak on behalf of God to the people. And this arrangement was working well, but the people decided that they wanted a king like all the other nations had around them as they demanded a king. And God, even though it was not best for them, God gave them what they wanted to teach them an important lesson. God gave them a king, and he named the king. His name was Saul. And Saul looked the part. The Bible says he was head and shoulders above every other male in Israel. I mean, he looked like a king. He looked like a warrior. And yet, we learn that there's more to a man than outward appearance. There's the, the matter of the heart. And we find out, as we study through 1 Samuel, that, that Saul struggled with his heart. We see that Saul made some very foolish decisions in chapters 13, 14, and 15 because of his sense of self-importance, his self-dependence, his self-indulgence. He makes some very poor decisions. So God chooses to remove the kingdom from Saul and raise up a new king, chapter 16 says, a man after God's own heart. And we're introduced to that new king that God has chosen. His name is David. We studied that last week as, as Samuel anoints David, the new king of Israel. But here in chapter 17, same, uh, Saul is still uh, functionally the king. He's leading until that time when God would raise up David to take the reins. And Saul is with his army as they are squared off battling the Philistines. Now the Philistines were constant thorns in the side of the Israelites. They're, they, all through the Old Testament they are warring against one another. The Philistines were a fierce people and they're squared off uh, with the prospect of battle. But just when you think the armies are about to start marching forward to engage in a great conflict, a giant, a champion of the Philistines, walks out and, and challenges any one person from the Israelites to come and fight him. And the states cannot be higher. Goliath says, if I win, you become our servants. If you win, we will become your servants. And we see that no one's willing to take the challenge. No one's willing to come and fight this giant. So what I want to do is I want to examine this, this text from three different perspectives. I want to look at three different themes that are woven throughout this text that help us to understand how this passage applies to our lives. It's not just an ancient story. It's an ancient story with some definite application into our day-to-day -day living. So I want to walk through those three major themes and then show you how they're all tied together uh, in this text. First of all, I want to show you the theme of fear. The theme of fear is prevalent in this story. Look what the Bible says in verse 11. It says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and 
greatly afraid. That word dismayed in the original Hebrew language means shattered or terrified. I mean, they are terrified by this giant named Goliath. And look what it says in verse 24. When all the men of Israel saw the man, Goliath, they fled from him and were not just afraid, they were greatly afraid. They were terrified of Goliath. They are gripped with fear. And at first glance, we might say, well, I don't blame them for being scared. Because look at the man that had come out to challenge them to fight. Goliath is introduced to us here in verse 4. A champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, if you do some conversion there, you find out that means that Goliath was about nine feet, nine inches tall. Now, to kind of give you a comparison, if you look over this basketball goal right here, that rim is ten feet from the floor. That means that Goliath's head would just be just under that rim. He was a giant. He was a man of great stature. And keep reading about Goliath. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. It's about 126 pounds of armor. 126 pounds. He's so massive, so powerful, he can, he can fight with 126 pounds of armor on his person. It says, he, verse 6, he had bronze greaves and on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 15 or 16 pounds. So if you're going to be effective with a, a, a spear, you have to be able to throw it accurately over a great distance. And to be able to throw a spear with the tip of it weighing 16 pounds accurately would require great strength and power. Goliath possessed that. And so you step back and say, well, how would you fight a giant? I mean, you wouldn't want to go hand-to-hand combat with him, right? So, hey, let's try archery, right? We can stand back hundreds of yards and shoot an arrow at him and kill him. Well, look at the last part of that verse. Look what it says in verse 7. It says, his shield carrier also walked before him. So he had this guy with a big shield, and if you shot arrows, he would just hold it up. And Goliath was shielded from the arrows. So you couldn't kill him with, with archery. It would require hand-to-hand combat. And the men of Israel, Saul himself, was, they were terrified. They were shattered by the prospect of fighting Goliath. Now, what I want to do is I want to examine, just for a moment, fear. Where does fear like that come from? Greatly afraid, terrified of Goliath. Where did that fear come from? Well, fear occurs when you don't see things from God's perspective. The people of Israel, the men of Israel, were not looking at Goliath from God's perspective. They were looking at him from an earthly perspective. And when fear gets a hold of us, it's when we don't see life through God's eyes. Now, remember what it says over in chapter 16, verse 7. You remember the story. Samuel goes to the household of Jesse because God told him to, and he was going to choose the next king from Jesse's sons. And the first son comes out, the oldest, named Eliab, and Samuel says, this has got to be the guy. He's tall, strong, handsome. He looks like a king. Eliab's got to be the man. And the Lord says, no, wait a minute, Samuel. Don't don't fall into that trap. Remember, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord chose a young shepherd boy, the baby of the family, the youngest of eight brothers, to be the next king because God looked at his heart, not just his stature, 
and he saw a heart for God. Now, that verse, 16-7, that says that God looks at the heart, not at outward appearance, doesn't just apply to David. It also applies to Goliath. God was not overwhelmed by Goliath's outward appearance. God was not in heaven wringing his hands together saying, what are we going to do about this giant? God sees beyond outward appearance. He sees the way things really are. He saw that, that Goliath was a, a worshiper of pagan gods, an enemy of the people of God, a man who was evil and wicked, and God was not intimidated by Goliath at all. As a matter of fact, from God's perspective, Goliath is the underdog. Not David. Goliath is the underdog. Because God's going to bring his power and his strength to bear on behalf of David. And who can stand before the power of God? No one, not even a giant. But see, Saul and his army was not looking, they were not looking at Goliath like that. They were looking at Goliath from, a, from a, sim, a simple earthly perspective. They were intimidated by his strength. And they did not see him as being under the, the, the dominion of a great God. Fear occurs when you don't see things from God's perspective. Secondly, fear occurs when you forget that you have a living God. Fear occurs when you forget that you have a living God. Look what the Bible says in verse 24. David comes on the scene. He was tending sheep, but his father, Jesse, said, I want you to go to the front lines and take your brother some supplies. And so David comes up, and he sees Goliath out there in the middle of the two armies doing his thing, taunting the army of Israel. The servants of Saul, verse 24, reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king is... I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. My, I was in uh, 1824. So, all right, 1724. The wind blew my page. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Notice, David calls God the living God. And look what David says in verse 36. This is David talking to King Saul. He says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David knew he had the living God of the universe on his side. Why would you fear when you have a living God? You see, if you have a living God in your life, if God is real and God is your God, that changes everything, right? Changes everything. You don't just look at your circumstances from an earthly perspective. You look at them as one who has the living God in his life. That's what David did. David was not filled with fear because he knew that God was alive. Sometimes we live like God is dead or we live like God is not real. But God is real. God is on his throne. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is mighty. And he is our God. We should not be filled with fear. 
You see, fear occurs when you forget that you have a living God. Is your God alive? If He is, then you can face things with courage and not be controlled by fear. But there's a second major theme in this passage. Not only the theme of fear, but there's the theme of faith. The theme of faith. David exemplifies for us strong faith. Say, wait, what does strong faith look like? Well, let me show you what strong faith looks like. Strong faith, listen to me, when confronted by intimidating situations, does not get hysterical, it gets historical. Strong faith, when facing intimidating situations, doesn't get hysterical, it gets historical. You know what David does here as he's faced with a prospect of fighting a giant? He gets historical. Look what happens in verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with his Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. He's getting historical here. Watch this. When a lion or a bear came out and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now that's pretty awesome. Look what he says next. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. What's David doing? He's getting historical. You see, God had provided a training ground for David's faith. His training ground was being a shepherd. And David saw God come through time after time after time. A lion or a bear would come and grab one of his sheep. David would hunt him down, take the sheep from him, and then when the lion or bear attacked him, he'd kill the lion or bear. That's pretty incredible, right? You say, well, David's just bragging here. He's just brag, bragging about his prowess. That's not what he's doing at all. Look at the next verse. Verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He's saying, God has been faithful to me in the past. God has come through in the past. I know God will come through now. David had strong faith because his faith was historical. He remembered how God had blessed him in the past. There's a wonderful song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. I quote it a lot because I love this line. In that song he says, I may not see in front of me, but I can see for miles when I look over my shoulder. And Lord, it's clear you brought me here so faithful every step of the way. When you are facing an intimidating situation, when you are... When you are tempted to fear, look back over your shoulder and just rehearse in your heart and your mind the faithfulness of God. Can I tell you this based upon the authority of Scripture? God has never let you down. Never. Now, I'm not saying you've never gone through difficult situations. I'm not saying that at all. Of course, we all have. But I'm saying that God has always been faithful in the midst of those tough times. Always. Listen. He always does the right thing. As the old hymn says, Jesus doeth all things well. And when you are prone to fear, when you are prone to intimidation, you need to stop and get historical. Not wringing your hands, not hysterical, not falling apart, but you look back over your life and you replay 
your life and see how God's hand has been on you and how God has blessed you and, and that remembrance of God's past faithfulness will, will strengthen you in the present. That's what David did. He got historical. Let me give you an illustration of how this works. Years ago, we were on a little family trip and we're staying at a hotel and we were in the hotel pool and a Cameron, who's, he's nine now, he was a little guy, and we were playing that game where he comes to the edge of the pool, and I was in the pool, and I said, jump, and I'll catch you. And at first, Cameron was real hesitant. He wouldn't do it. I said, come on, Cameron, jump, I'll catch you, Cameron, I'll catch you. Finally, he jumped, and I caught him. I put him back up there. I said, jump. And it still took him a while, but not as quite as long, and he jumped again. After a while, he's running, jumping way into the pool, and I'm catching Why? Because Cameron got historical. He knew that dad kept catching him. And based upon the fact that dad kept catching him, he was willing to jump out yet again, trusting that dad would do the same thing he's always done, catch him again. When we are faced with intimidating circumstances, and we are faced with the rigors of life, we need to get historical. And just remember how good God has been to us. And that will strengthen our faith here in the present. Because here's the deal about strong faith. Strong faith fuels courage. If you you lack courage, it's a faith issue. It's a trust issue. Strong faith fuels courage. Look what the Bible says in verse 38. David convinces Saul that, hey, I've I've killed a bear, I've killed a lion, I can fight Goliath. So, in verse 38, Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So Saul said to David, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. Now, we'll get into more of that next week. But I want you to see what happens here in verse 40. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag which he had, even in his pouch, And his sling was in his hand. Now look at this last phrase. And he approached the Philistine. Don't you love that? He approached the Philistine. All of Goliath's life, he was used to people running from him. Now all of a sudden, someone is walking to him, and it's a young boy. What gave David that kind of fortitude that kind of courage to actually walk towards a giant. Strong faith. He knew who God was. He had a living God. And because of his faith in the living God, he was willing to step out with courage to do something great for God. And so we see in this text fear. And we see in this text the theme of faith. But I want to show you the third major theme, and I I believe this is the major theme of this chapter. It's the glory of God. The glory of God. The major theme of this chapter is zeal for the glory of God. A lot of times when we hear this sermon preached or, or we read a book about it, it's all about the giants in your life and facing the giants in your life, and that's certainly an application, an implication, but but don't miss the major theme. The major theme is the glory of God. This This passage is about God. All right? And I want to show you why I believe that. Six times in this chapter, 
there's some form of the root harap, which is a Hebrew word, which means to reproach, defy, or mock. So we see it all the time. There's this, this reproach against God's name, God's people. Look what it says in verse 10. Again, the Philistines said, I defy, there's that word, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's, he's, he's deriding, he's mocking God's people. I defy them to come fight me. Look in verse 25. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming to defy, same word, to defy Israel, to mock Israel, to bring reproach upon Israel's name. Look at verse 26, it's twice in this verse. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach? Same root word there. The reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt, that he should defy, that he should mock the armies of the living God? Look in verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted, defied the armies of the living God. And then look in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. So over and over again we see that what made David's blood boil was the fact that Goliath had the audacity to defy the armies of the living God. And David was not going to go out like that. David's not going to stand for that. I, I love this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon about David. He writes, As David marked how the Israelites were crushed in spirit before their formidable enemies, a fervent indignation stirred his soul. But when he heard the terms of defiance... He felt that the God of Israel himself was compromised in this quarrel. The name of Jehovah was dishonored. That braggart giant who stalked before the host defied the armies of the living God. No wonder that the warm and devout heart of the brave young shepherd was moved with a mighty heaving. The passion of a warrior kindled in his breast at the sound of that profane voice of the uncircumcised Philistine who could trifle with the honor of Jehovah, the God of heaven and of earth. David did not like this giant defying the army of the one true God. He was not going to stand for that. You see, the reputation of Yahweh's name was so important to David that he was willing to risk his life. I don't want you to miss that. The reputation of Yahweh's name was so important to David that he was willing to risk his life. I like what Dale Ralph Davis writes. Hence, in this chapter, David essentially says to Israel and to us, Yahweh's reputation is at stake. That matters to me. That matters enough to risk my life for it. Now, here's my question for you. Does the glory of God matter to you? Does the reputation of God matter to you does the fame and renown of god matter to you do you want to see his name lifted high do you want to see his name honored are you willing to live courageously in the face of intimidation for the glory of god see people that have a zeal for god's glory cannot live mundane lives if you have a zeal for god's glory you're not going to just go through the motions 
you know, making it through the day, trying to make it to the weekend, just kind of going through the motions of life. If you have a zeal for the glory of God, you're going to be jumping off the side of the pool, amen? With courage and boldness for the glory of God. If you have a zeal for His glory, you cannot live an ordinary life. It's just not going to happen. It's going to bubble up and bubble over in your life. So we see these three things. Fear. Faith. The glory of God. Now if you look at that closing thought I have there for you, it kind of ties these three themes together. Here's how I want to apply this to your life and to my life. Fear keeps us from living boldly for God's glory. Faith propels us to attempt great things for God. You say, wait, what's this passage about? This is what it's about. Fear keeps us from living boldly for God's glory. Faith propels us to attempt great things for God. So you're going to encounter various situations in life where you've got to listen to the voice of fear or the voice of faith. You might find yourself answering this question. Should I go on a mission trip? Longview Point, they're sending teams all over the place, all over the world, all over North America, different continents. All the time we're hearing of teams going and coming. There's a team right now in Spearfish, South Dakota. Team getting ready to go to Ecuador, uh, Wales. We're going all over the world. Uganda. And you say, well, should I go on one of those mission trips? And, and immediately when you ask yourself that question, Fear begins to creep up, doesn't it? Well, you, it'd be hard to raise the money, and I don't know if God can provide that, and boy, it's, it's a, a dangerous area or unstable area, and I, I don't know about that. I don't know about leaving my, my, my community, my home, my neighborhood, my family, my country. I don't know about all that. And, and we, we're confronted with that issue. Should I, should I boldly go somewhere to represent Jesus? And the voice of fear says no. As a matter of fact, when I first started going on, on some uh, international trips, I had family back home, you know, extended family, that, that just did not understand. You know, why would you go to a country with an with a, a oppressive, dictatorial government that doesn't want Christians there? Why would you go and, 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 and try to live for Jesus in the midst of that? Why would you do that? That's dangerous. You shouldn't do that. And I had family trying to talk me out of going. And if you're confronted with the opportunity to... to to go in a cross-cultural setting, family will try to talk you out of it too. And fear will begin to grip your heart. I remember one time Frank and I were talking about an unreached people group in uh, East Africa, or in the east part of Congo. And we're talking about how to get to them. And, and Frank said, we've got to fly into here, and you've got to drive down here. And then you come to this lake, and you've got to cross the lake. And he was just kind of thinking to himself. He said, you know, the lake crossing is kind of iffy. And I said, well, what do you mean by iffy? Do you mean deadly? He said, well, there's, you know, there's hippos and crocodiles and, you know, it depends on what kind of boat we get on that. So, for, to FYI, when Frank says iffy, it could be really dangerous, all right? But we think about things like that, and, and it grips our heart, and we say, no, that's for somebody else. It's not for me. But my question is this. Is God's glory worth you stepping out in faith and going into a cross-cultural setting to represent Jesus Christ? Is it? Is his glory worth it? Is his reputation worth it? Maybe you'll find yourself at some point in your life confronted with this question. Should I, should I fight for my marriage? 
The voice of fear says, ah, it's, it's too tough. I'm going to throw in the towel and go another direction. But can I ask you this question? If you let God have his way in your marriage and he rescued your marriage, would he get glory from that? And isn't God's glory worth it? I mean, wouldn't you want to see God glorify his name by, by saving your marriage? If, if you don't give in to fear and you step forward boldly in faith, you say, God, have your way. I'm going to fight for my marriage. I want you to work in my life and work in my spouse's life. And we're going to fight for this thing with courage and boldness for your glory. You might find yourself asking, answering this question. If you're a young person in school, should I let my friends at school see me reading my Bible and praying? What are they going to think when I pull up my Bible out of my backpack? What are they going to think when it's lunchtime and before I eat, I bow my head and thank my maker who gave me this food? Fear says, no, no, no. They're going to think you're weird. No, don't, don't go there. Don't be a fanatic. That's what fear says. Faith says, God is worthy of my worship. And the glory of God is worth me representing him in my school. He's worthy of my surrendered life to him, whether I'm in church or whether I'm in class or whether I'm on an athletic team or in band or wherever I am. God is worthy of a, of a devoted life from me. You might find yourself answering this question, should I remain an undercover Christ follower at work? I have a question for you today. Do the people in your workplace even know that you're a Christian? Do they know that Jesus is everything to you? Do they know that you treasure him above all else? I'm not talking about being weird. I'm just talking about following Jesus with courage. Because he's worthy of your worship and worthy of your devotion and worthy of your praise. And he's worthy of glory in your workplace. And so, when you have this opportunity, should I go public with my faith at work? The voice of fear says, no. The voice of faith says, God is worth it, right? God is worth it. We could go on and on with these questions, these different situations we encounter where we are tempted to be intimidated. We're tempted to be fearful. We're tempted to cower down instead of living boldly, courageously, with strong faith for the glory of God. So let me give you a little bit of, let me give you some tools, all right? Next time you face a, a spiritually intimidating situation, ask yourself these four questions. You ready? Number one, do I have a living God? Next time you're tempted to cower down and live in fear, ask yourself the question, is my God alive? <laughs> is my God on his throne? Is he present in my life? Is he with me like he said he is? Second question. Has God been faithful? Look back over your shoulder. Examine God's faithfulness in your past. Let that strengthen you in the here and now. Third question. Is God's honor at stake? Is God's honor at stake? David approached the Philistine because the honor of God was at stake. God's glory mattered to David. He was willing to risk his life for the glory of God. Is God's honor at stake? And number four, 
What's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? I believe that if we all left this building today and went about our week asking ourselves the question, what's the right thing to do for the glory of God? It would fundamentally change our community. It would turn our community, it would turn our workplaces, our schools upside down if we said, what's the right thing to do? How can I boldly live for the glory of God where He has me? If we would all ask that question, things would change. Because instead of like Saul and the army cowering behind the front lines, we would be like David, marching forward for God's fame. So here's my, my admonition. Live for the glory of God. Live boldly for the glory of God. Live boldly for the glory of God this week. Because Jesus is worth it. You know, just like the Philistines had a champion, we have a champion, don't we? His name is Jesus. He left the splendor and glory of heaven. He came to earth. He lived a perfect and matchless life. He died on the cross in our place. He took our punishment for us. And then after he paid that infinite price, after he died on the cross on the third day, Jesus defeated death itself. He walked out of his tomb. He walked out of his grave. The tomb is empty. He's alive. He's on his throne. And he's worthy of our lives. Live boldly for his glory.